He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. E te tī, e te tā, nau mai anō ki tēnei kaupapa kōrero, a tiahika. Now for the past few weeks we've featured the Māori political legacy series, Mā Tangiraya. Tonight, Ron Mark. He spent 20 years in the military. He was the former New Zealand First MP and, of course, the former Minister of Defence. In this corridor with Mihi Narangi Forbes, he talks about his real name, his time in foster care and, of course, his career in politics. My name's Ron Mark. I grew up mainly in the Wairarapa. Didn't know a lot about my whakapapa. What I'm telling you is what I've learned since the age of 37 when I started becoming more aware as who I was. So my real name is Rongo Whitiao Marka. My iwi, Naitahu, Atiawa, Nati Kahanunu, Rokawa, Tiaroa, Nati Puro, and Fakatohia, and Rangatane. Out of all that, really, this little Maori boy grew up in Paihatua. I want to start by asking you a question that not many other people know. Your name is Rongo Whitiao Maka, um, a Te Arawa Raukawa chief. How did you become Ron Mark? Uh, I think it goes back to <clears throat> as far as I've been ascertained, because, you know, as you know, I was brought up as a foster kid, and there's a lot about myself I never knew for a long time. But um, it would appear that my grandfather when he came across uh, from this side of the coast, uh, from uh, Horofunua, went over to the Wairarapa. I guess back in that time, people chose not to use their Māori name or they found it challenging when Pākehā and others couldn't pronounce their name. So he shortened his name. He, he used the name uh, Ron Mark as opposed to Ron Fitiol Marka. And uh, I don't know how he did it, but my, my dad, I learned knew that he had to pass that name on to the oldest grandson, Ron Fitiol. But for whatever reason, he put down on the birth certificate, Ron Mark. And he changed his name from Apati Marka to Peter Mark. But over time, as he, as he got older, he went back to Apati Marka as well, leaving me hanging there as Ron Mark. What led to you coming into foster care? Well, looking back, I mean, I never, I, I grew up not knowing. Mm. All I knew was <laughs> I was a foster kid and um, I'd always hoped I'd be adopted. Yeah. I never knew to very much later in my life. One of the things that reminded me is that I, as an MP, <laughs> that's how long it took, uh, that I had the right to actually ask on the Official Information Act for my files. <laughs> and I did it while I was here. In fact, my office was just around the corner from here and... Uh, and I, I, I crafted that email and sent it off and asked for my files, and I read a lot there. Long and short of it is that my family was very dysfunctional. Mm. My mum and dad fought a lot. There was a lot of alcohol, a lot of abuse. And there was a, an amazing letter in there which explained the final incident written by a, a neighbour who um, took me and my sister, Angela, into her home and fed us and clothed us and wrote to the Department of Social Welfare and, and told them mm. of her observations of that day. We were all put into foster care and, mm. and as more children were born, they too were put into care. And uh, that's all I ever knew. 
you had a long career in the forces uh, before you came to politics. What attracted you to the army, do you think? I just had a thing about soldiering. I don't know why, I just wanted only ever to be a soldier. One of the things that probably helped that was uh, Uncle Lou uh, Thorburn. Um, as a foster kid, you go often go through some pretty tough times, and uh, I remember this one particular day sitting on the porch, and uh, I don't know what prompted Uncle Lou to come out and check on me, but he came and looked at me and sat down beside me, and he said to me, you know, Ronnie, if you'd seen what I saw the 28th Māori Battalion do in Egypt, in Africa, and in Italy, you would have forever be proud that you're Māori. Don't ever forget that. And that stuck with me for years. And did you feel that when you joined, um, the pride? Yeah, I think um, what I found in there was, I guess the army was like a family that you quickly fell into. And um, I was surprised at the number of Māori boys who were there with similar backgrounds to me. Came from nothing had nothing, nothing was ever expected of them, weren't ever going to achieve anything. In fact, that's what my deputy principal said after he caned me on my final day at school, signed my leaving certificate and told me to get out. And you did become something. You spent a good decade in the New Zealand mm. Army. Yeah, well, I, um, my departure from the New Zealand Army was um, not a good one. And that was because, you yeah, I'd attended the New Zealand SA selection mm. with Jerry Mataprai. <laughs> Funny how things you know, work out in the end. But Jerry and I got through selection. We were the only two regular force officers in that intake to do so. And I was just gutted when I was prevented from going up to Papakura by my corps director, who said felt they'd invested a lot of money in me as an engineering officer. And, uh, and I'd done the... Um, I had the opportunity to do the deployment to the Sinai. Uh, I came back, I'd gone from being a second lieutenant to an active major <laughs> in three months flat and um, done a, I thought, a pretty good job. I, I found it hard to go back to just being routine. Mm. I needed to go to the group, to the SAS. At least have a try at being badged, do the cycle. Three years of fighting that fight and I got nowhere, so... Out of the blue, I got asked to attend an interview in Wellington and a British Army officer came in and I was selected to go and join the Sultan of Oman's army. You know, I always had a saying, you never turn down a deployment. So I went. And then I was there nine months and I was asked to join the Special Forces, and which I did. And uh, that was four years down on the Yemen border and a military base up in the Jebel, the mountains. So that was a hell of an experience. Um, I was very grateful for that opportunity. But I will always say the most valuable thing I learned is how to, how to work with people, no matter what culture, no matter what religion. And we had a simple rule. This is a bit of an irony. We don't talk politics. We work. Years later, while serving in the Sultan of Oman's armed forces, Mark received a phone call that would change the trajectory of his career. And it was my mother-in-law then, Marie Therese Berry, who <laughs> rang me at about two o'clock in the morning, Oman time, woke me up and asked me, when are you coming home? And I told her, and she said, good, you're standing for parliament in this year's elections. This was 1990. Where was she having you stand? Selwyn against Ruth Richardson. Wow. 
And you were in, you were up for it? I was still in uniform. No, I said no. And um, I got home and found, and found it was true. And now, she'd always been heavily involved. She was the chair of the Labour Electric Committee and so on. And I'd had many arguments and many debates with her and all of her friends. And my views were always slightly right-wing and I, I was a bit challenging for them, I think. But she always said to me, I'm going to see you in Parliament. One day I'm going to see you in Parliament. And I, yeah, yeah. But I turned it down. 1990, I found excuses not to do it. Mm. I supported their campaign. I helped. I was a worker. But then 93 came round and there was no escaping and she was not letting go. And it was another one of these two o'clock in the morning discussions around a, a teapot on a formica table in the kitchen in the Burnham police station because her husband, Elf, was the cop. And she finally put it to me and she said, look, whether you do this or not, it's entirely up to you. But let me make it very clear, if you do not do this, I don't ever want to hear complain about anything ever again. So I stood. And I nearly beat Ruth Richardson on the night. I was only 540 votes behind her. But Bolger fired her as a Minister of Finance. And uh, she spat the dummy in and resigned and uh, forced the by-election. And, of course, Labor came to me. But in the meantime, Helen Clark had rolled Mike, and I didn't like that. After missing out on the Selwyn electorate in 1993, Mark considered standing for Mike Moore's proposed New Zealand Democratic Coalition. But Moore pulled the pin on the party, and Mark soon found himself being courted by New Zealand First officials. Bert Walker kept ringing me and saying, what you stand for New Zealand First? And I said, yeah. And one day I was so frustrated, I, I was busy at work, the phone rang, it was him again. I said, listen... If Winston wants me to stand for New Zealand First, he'll bloody well come to my house, like Mike Moore did, and he'll ask me. All right, bye. And I hung up. A day later, the phone rang. And there's a voice, deep voice. Am I wrong? Winston Peters here. I want to come and see you. All right. In 1996, Mark was elected to Parliament as a list MP, joining Tau Henare and four new Māori New Zealand First MPs to Koroirangi Morgan, to Tekawa Waili, Rana Waitai and Tuariki Delamere. And I was the Māori who wasn't a Māori. And what was that oh, like? the National Party thought I was a Pakistani. What was that like? Did you oh, get along with them? Well, it was a bit daunting in a way because they, they spoke te reo, Māori. Uh, I didn't. They understood whakapapa. I was learning how to pronounce the word. Um, I had not been raised in any way uh, and within a Māori environment. And I remember sitting down with Rana, who, you know, I really, you know, I like them all, you know. I wanted to bang their heads together over that time, but I love them all. They're brothers, you know. They taught me a lot. And uh, Tutukawa understood my papa probably more than I did, way more than I did. Rana knew straight away, as soon as I put some papers down in front of him from Wakatu, and he said, where'd you get those? And I said, oh, they're mine, from my, my dad. He said, oh boy, that's the Rolls-Royce Māori organisation, <laughs> that one. You know, you got shares in that, you're Rolls-Royce. And then you know, I said, so they started asking me and I told them what little bits I knew. Rana said to me, he said, you want the good news or the bad news, boy? I said, oh, give me the bad news. And he said, you're a grace. Yeah. He said, well, half your whanau are in jail. And I said, what's the good news? And he said, well, the other half are scholars and writers and academics. And I said, oh... I guess I just missed out on going to jail then, because I'm not an academic. And, uh, but, you know, they were good for me because they, 
uh, Tūruki, taking me back up into Apōtuki mm. to meet my whānau on my Nani Puhi Puhi side. Um, things I never even knew and still don't understand completely. Mm. Um, the connectivity uh, back down to um, Naitahu uh, and all that came from Tutukawa. Uh, the encouragement to look deeper came from Tuku and Tau, mischievous Tau. Although Mark enjoyed a warm relationship with the Type 5, New Zealand First was headed for disaster, its unpopular coalition with National eventually tearing the party apart. Where mm. were you? Were you having to support Winston? I was the whip, the chief whip. I guess, you know, it's a funny old thing that Winston, um, he picked, he made nine people out of a caucus of 17 ministers and not me. And uh, I reminded him that the other day. But he said, no, no, Ron, I need you as a whip. You're a military man. I need you as a whip. And I said, what's a whip? And he said, well, um, you just need to know this, that all chief whips eventually become cabinet ministers. I didn't know it was going to take 20-odd years. But, you know, you know, but uh, loyalty demands that you stand by your boss and stand by your leader. And if you can't stand by them, you shake their hand and you resign and you walk. I made my choice to stay with Winston and it frustrated me that the others didn't. And I can see, looking back, how frustrated they were. And there were tougher times ahead. In 2008, New Zealand First was voted out of Parliament following a donation scandal. Mark stood for the Carterton mayoralty and won. In 2014, he returned to Parliament, becoming deputy leader, but was later replaced by Fletcher Tabato. That must have been tough, or, or, or was it tough? Yeah. Or did you just oh, realise? Like, I mean, initially, it was once I knew what was going on. You know, things that you see on first don't happen without Winston knowing. But we always put the leadership and the deputy leadership and the whips to the vote at the start of every term. We always do that. And, um, you know, I think... I did a good job in that space. The result we got was in part due to a lack of leadership around electorate levels and, uh, and I think some people dropped the ball. But losing the deputy leadership freed me in many ways to just focus on the people I love. And the military. In terms of that, yeah, you became the Minister for Defence. What did that mean to you? Oh. To go from being a 16-year-old boy soldier to make it, uh, you know, to hit your goal, uh, to become an officer, to serve with special forces, but to finish your career as the Minister of Defence, having done a good job. I've seen a lot of people who have finished their careers as Minister of Defence. No, but to finish having done a good job, that's... For me, that's satisfying. But Ron Mark's crowning achievement was securing compensation for George Nepata and an apology for his brother Damien, who were seriously injured in separate accidents while serving in the New Zealand Army. A campaign decades in the making. That sits alongside of... Um, well, that, that is one that I've never forgotten from been a fresh-faced new member of parliament back in 1996, 97, 99, listening to the story and knowing 
the backdrop of all this. I served in Queen Alexander's mounted rifles. I know uh, Scorpion tanks and APCs inside out. Uh, I knew their unit and I knew Damien's story. I knew of George's story. And as I read into it, I just became extremely frustrated, angry sometimes. What I saw was a, a whitewashing of facts with facts and none of it stood up morally to me. And it was frustrating to be there in opposition, voting for compensation or some sort of ex gratia payment at a select committee and having the government of the day turn, turn and say no. It was frustrating. You get that moment of euphoria when there's a change of government, you say, right, those people who were on my side are now in government, and you go back and again, <laughs> and they say no. Now it's Bill and Ben, Pepsi and Coke, National Labor. There are times they are exactly the same. And, I, and it was just, it was daunting. It was, it was challenging. But, you know, this time, this, was, this time it was my game. And I took people right back to square one and made them walk me through. And it took two years. It took two years. But I'll sleep comfortably for the rest of my life. Because I know that what I took to Cabinet at the end of the day was the right thing to do. By 2020, the coalition between Labour, New Zealand First and the Greens was beginning to appear increasingly fragile. New Zealand First regularly criticising and voting down its partner's proposed legislation. The coalition, you know, tell me, how tough was that? This coalition? coalition? Yeah, the one that we've just had. Yeah, look, I, I always believe the heart of anything is the relationships. If you have good relationships, respectful relationships, good working relationships with people, you can get through things. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can get through tough times. I <laughs> found the most unlikely friends in the Green Party. I think what took them totally by surprise is that I became the first Minister of Defence to talk about climate change and to specifically identify climate change as a crisis and a security threat that threatens the whole world, but in particular is threatening disproportionately the Pacific. And then when I, having kicked MOD off and said, you will do a threat assessment on climate change. And uh, these are the issues that I think you need to examine from a security perspective. I'm not sure how they they took that to start with, but when the paper was finally finished and I asked James Shaw to stand with me on the podium and launch it with me, and it was my work, Mm. I just think that took them all totally by surprise. So I think, you know, for me, I had no problems working. You know, the Greens were my partners. I respected them. And you'd need to understand in a coalition government, you've got to give the partners freedom to express their view in accordance with their philosophies and to stay loyal to their policies and their constituencies. I guess if I got frustrated, it was with Labour seeking to steal the credit for things that weren't theirs. The Greens did it occasionally, but I could talk about it. Is that where it went wrong in the coalition, do you think? I, th- I think, for, you for, know, for New Zealand first. probably some resented the handbrake. I think we all need to respect 
each other's right to appeal to our own voting constituencies and to be true to our party's philosophies and and policies and to learn to park stuff up for another day. Because, you know, politics is a long game. Yeah. A long, long, long game. If winning that battle costs you the war, you need to seriously consider whether it's worth engaging. And some issues maybe weren't worth engaging. When did you start to consider that you might not be coming back to Parliament? I didn't want to consider that. I thought if I could win the wider upper, <laughs> it was a pie in the sky as it turned out. <laughs> but, so you, um, you believed all the way to the end? I thought we would still come in at five. What took me off guard was everywhere I went, people spoke well of me, to me, were very happy with my, the way I'd done my job and, and what I'd achieved. And what I missed, I guess, was that they weren't talking about New Zealand First. They weren't talking about the party when they were praising me and thanking me. They were talking about Ron Mark. And uh, I missed that. I, I look back to 2008. I know what it's like to be hated. Yeah. I know what it's like to be thoroughly disliked. I didn't get that sense in this last election. But then I guess maybe what I was seeing was people's response to me, not necessarily to Winston. Is it over for Ron Mark? I'd like to think that I can continue to serve New Zealand. You know, I think sometimes I'm crazy. If I'd stayed out in Civvy Street, I probably would have been a multimillionaire running a good company somewhere. I mean, I've had my time leading Māori entities and done it successfully. I've had my time with FOMAR. Mm. I've had my time as the mayor of Carterton. I've enjoyed some successes and maybe if I'd just stuck to business and stayed out of politics, I'd be a, a wealthier man. But I don't think I'd be a wealthier man inside my head. I am only where I am because of some very good people. Yeah, you know, good foster parents, a very good welfare officer. Yeah, there's some rubbish that happens when you're a foster kid. There's a lot. Yeah, you know, I learned to put that stuff away. Good people came to my rescue. Good people in the army slapped me back onto the railway tracks and kept me going forward. Then I came to Parliament and I met more good people. I think I've done, I've done the job as best I possibly could. I think there's more, but not necessarily in Parliament. And if I could serve uh, New Zealand, uh, the area I loved and where I, I think I excelled was in diplomacy. And my relationships throughout Southeast Asia, through the Pacific, through the Middle East, are very, very strong. If you want a safe pair of hands, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves again. I want to finish where I started and I want to ask you, what does it feel like for you to be called Rongo Whitiao Marka now, having been not Rongo Whitiao for most of your life and rediscovering that name? I think this, <clears throat> the value in that name um, and, you know, I've grown up as Ron Mark and all my mates. My close mates call me Ronnie. But the strength and the value in that name is, I think, I'd like to think, is the pride that my moko take from knowing who they are. 
I, I, I guess sometimes you wonder if you'd done some things earlier, well, what would you have done differently? But you know, life presents you as you walk down that, that pathway with many forks and many alternate roads. And you know, if I'd had a normal upbringing, where would I have been? I don't know. Mm. I believe uh, in this room reminds me of that. I believe there are people around me all the time. And hopefully, some of my whanau who still don't know me, didn't have the opportunity to raise me, hopefully my grandchildren, of whom there are 14, will find something they can be proud of and give them strength. Tēnā koe, rongo whitiao. Tēnā koe, mō o kōrero. Thank you. Thank you, Bingi. Thank you very much. Tēnā kōrua, mihi Narangi Forbes, with former New Zealand First MP Ron Mark. Mā Tangirea is a Māori political legacy video and podcast series, and you can access all of the episodes right now at rnz.co.nz. Next week... Uh, when asked about, um, oh, Georgina Barr's had a very interesting and exciting life. And he was sort of, oh, yes, well, yes, Georgina has had an interesting life, but then again, so have I. And at least at the end of the day, I'm still a man. Went down like a ton of bricks. And apparently the campaign manager turned around and said, I think we just lost the wire wrapper. Former Labour Party MP Georgina Bayer talks about her time in Parliament. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can, of course, email tiahika at rnz.co.nz and, of course, subscribe to the podcast RNZ Tiahika on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you access your podcasts. Kua ea te kaupapa mō tēnei wiki, hei kona mai.